0: Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, I'm Natalie Selfman, your host. I've been uh, using my voice in my work for about 15 years now I used to be on the radio now I'm podcasting and do a lot of voiceover work now the fertility podcast has a whole host of episodes for you from adenomyosis to zero sperm it's total a to z of all sorts of things that affect you on your fertility journey I'm mum to a little boy called phoenix after having successful ICSI treatment and that was my reason to start in the podcast and I hope that if you found us Then you'll realize that you are not alone. This podcast is to help educate and empower you. I brought together as many experts and tried to share as many of your stories as possible. And I now have my wonderful co host. I'm Kate
1: Davis, a fertility nurse consultant, and I'm adamant that we can all do so much better at understanding our fertility. I'm really passionate about teaching you to take ownership of your fertility teaching you practical steps, emotional coping strategies, and lifestyle changes that you can make to hopefully optimise your chances of conceiving.
0: Now you know who we are, all you need to do is enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. How are you doing? How are you holding up? It is the 6th of April, if you're listening to this as it's just come out, and we are still in lockdown And I just wanted to do a little intro before you hear the episode to say, I hope you're doing all right. And um, basically, Kate and I are going to be starting this Wednesday, which is the 8th of April, uh, a little Instagram live where at 12.30 GMT time, we're going to be doing the Tea Break pod live on Instagram. We'll answer some questions. We'll talk about some of the information that's been shared recently in light of Getting pregnant at the moment, and um, the latest that we know about issues around fertility treatment. So every Wednesday at twelve thirty GMT time, it will then be on the Fertility Podcast YouTube channel. Because I'm going to make sure that we save the the Insta chat, and you can hear Kate predominantly answering your questions, and me doing my best. Um, But she's the she's the more sciencey clever one. So if you've got a question you would like Kate to answer, best thing to do is to email info at the fertilitypodcast.com or you can get in touch via our social media. I'm at Fertility Poddy, Kate is your fertility journey. Also, make sure you've subscribed to the fertility podcast feed because on Wednesday we've got a bonus episode that we're going to be sharing which is a very exciting conversation with MediChecks who are a home blood testing company that are going to be launching their fertility tests which is really interesting especially if you're in a place where things have been halted and maybe this is giving you time to think about what your options are and you could do a few more tests at home. So do make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that episode coming out on Wednesday the 8th too. Now, if this podcast has just popped up somewhere and you haven't yet subscribed, it's really straightforward, okay, to get subscribed to a podcast. Download a podcast app. If you're on an um, on an iPhone, it'll be an Apple podcast or Spotify. If you're on an Android, it could be Spotify. It might be Google Podcasts. It might be um, Acast or Stitcher and just subscribe and then you won't miss any of the content that is going on. Now, before I tell you about today's episode, I just want to give a heartfelt Thank you to all of the amazing people that are doing their best to keep us safe uh, around the world. I doubt they'll be listening to this, but I just wanted to say that it is just amazing what people are doing. And we will get through this. We will heal. And I hope if you're listening and there are people around you who are suffering in any way, that they too heal as soon as possible. This is such a testing time for all of us. And all we can do here with the podcast is just keep putting some content out that will hopefully be of use. Now, um, this episode today is one that we recorded end of last year, actually. It's about male infertility, which is a topic close to my heart. There's a whole section at thefertilitypodcast.com of previous episodes talking about this with men sharing their story and experts. And you're going to be hearing from Kevin McElhaney, who has been a guest before, talking about Klinefelter syndrome, and also Eleanor Stevenson, his colleague. And the pair of them have created this peer support website called All About Infertility, which is support for men. And it's such an invaluable service. And I hope that if you're a guy listening, you're going to check it out. If you're listening and you think it'd be beneficial to your other half, for a friend, please do tell them about this episode. Listen to the end to make sure that um, you get all the details of how you can get in touch with us again. But for now, I hope you find this useful. Stay safe, stay home, and thanks for listening. So we're now going to welcome to the podcast a newly honoured Professor of Nursing, Eleanor Stevenson, who is at the Duke University School of Nursing in North Carolina, along with Kevin McElhaney, who is a male fertility urologist. Along with Kate, we are really chuffed to have you both here on the podcast. We've crossed all our time zones, and with the power of technology, we're all connected um, on a really like, miserable evening here in the UK. I think it's pretty gloomy where you are, Eleanor, isn't it? It is indeed. Well, it's lovely to have you here. Tell us, Eleanor, first of all, a bit about your background, and then we're going to talk about the the joint project that um, you've done with Kevin.
2: Sure. So I've been a nurse for 25 years and um, I primarily worked in women's health for, for my clinical career. Um in the last 10 years I've been working in academic nursing and I focus my research on fertility questions. I worked as a fertility nurse about 15 years ago when I was completing my PhD. And I just uh, I knew that that these were my people that I really needed to focus my career and my professional efforts and passions towards. And I just I, I love the clinical area, I love the patients, and I have enjoyed very much working to make things a little bit better for patients who are going through fertility and also help nurses who are entering the field have an awareness about fertility and some of the considerations.
1: I love that you said that you found that they were your people because that's exactly how I feel about fertility and fertility patients. They are definitely my people. I completely get
2: that. Yeah, I had been working in um, as, um, uh, like I said, a women's health nurse in various areas. And as soon as I worked with this population, I just felt that they were somebody I guess I understood and I saw, you know, the ups and the downs and the in-betweens that patients can uh, go through, uh, women and men, and I just felt like I could understand them and and that piece of me as a nurse that connects with patients that's where I felt the most connection. So Kevin tell us how
0: the pair of you met I have spoken with Kevin on a previous podcast episode and I will share a link to it but tell us how you and Eleanor met and a bit more about your work. Well it
3: was some years ago when ESHRA which is the European facility meeting was in London and we were both speakers and we ended up sitting next to each other at the speaker's dinner so I figured out that Eleanor Was uh, a qualitative researcher, and I realized how impactful that could be for really making a difference to people who are affected by fertility challenges. So, my challenge was to try and persuade Eleanor that what she wanted to do was to do male fertility rather than female fertility, so I could get her enormous American brain in on on the scene to try and make a difference to people. So, it kind of worked, it kind of started from there, really. Then we sort of corresponded. And then we got some small grants together. Well, Eleanor did most of the writing because she's really the brains of the outfit. And uh, we had some research together and it's it's taken from there. And this is kind of in some ways, this is the logical end point of what we've been trying to work towards now for many years.
0: Well, it's really exciting what you've created. So let's start kind of getting our heads around it because you've kind of created a brand new platform, haven't you?
3: Yeah, so basically the research we'd done before, we'd interviewed couples affected by male food problems both in the UK and in the US. And we may have spoken about it before, and Elena was was the, the US arm. And one of the things we found was that the men were very, very distressed, but they didn't want to disclose, they didn't want to speak to people, counselors, or some of the men wouldn't. Not something wrong with counselling, of course, it's fantastic, but they simply wouldn't engage with it. And beyond that, they wouldn't let their partners disclose to other people. So not only was the female partner supporting the man, she was feeling under support of herself. So we tried to think of a way in which the men could get some support and then it would enable all to have a smoother journey because, as we all know perfectly well, it doesn't always end the way people would like it to. So looking at experiences like the men's sheds movement, where it's been shown that men can often function best if they're dealing with other men and they're kind of shared around a task and it's the peer support element that seems to work for them. But obviously then there's the issue of how do you limit the privacy, the disclosure, which is a concern for them. We thought maybe the way to do it would be an online peer support platform where men could register and then log on anonymously and get support from other men who are in the same situation as them. And because because of the power of the internet and all that, it could be done anywhere. So the next step was to try and find somebody who would help us do it because. Obviously, I'm uh, incredibly famous. as you've probably spotted so far. Well, Ellen's better than me, but the seamless
0: connection that we had.
3: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've got to wind the thing up at the back there to get it going again. <laughs> but uh, we need someone who can basically have the the ability to to set up this system, but also to help us promote it. And we haven't got the time; and we're busy doing other things. So we ended up working with CRYOS, who you, you probably know as a sperm bank. We had a, a good meeting with them at Eshwell last year. We told them that we felt they had perhaps a, a kind of moral responsibility to put something back. Their business model is based on an altruistic gift if you like, and they they thoroughly understood that. And I thought approaching a Scandinavian company would be a good idea, because they've got this kind of ethos about uh, being part of the community and, and, and helping others. And they really responded well to it. So they've been very enthusiastic and it's gone from strength to strength. So then we kind of figured out what we wanted on there. So we decided that there's a concern amongst some men about the information they get from the internet. Is it correct? Is it gonna be harmful? What can they believe? Because you may not realize this, but sometimes some fertility websites do sell things that perhaps aren't necessarily proven treatments. So, so we thought we'd try and do is get some nice, straightforward information on there that people look to and say it's written by experts, it's reliable, it's non-contentious, this is something that can be believed. As well as that, we'd like to have other bits of pieces too, you know, maybe more provoke provocative types of comments that, you know, cutting-edge research or controversial areas, but to start, with, we wanted just basic information that people anywhere around the world would be able to log on to for free to read and get some knowledge.
1: Kevin, I just want to take you back a minute to when you were talking about the kind of research that you did amongst the UK and US couples and how you found that the men were coming across. Because one interesting thing that I've found quite a bit in my practice is that often I'll, have, I'll find that a woman takes the blame for infertility if it is, say, it's a male factor infertility, but the woman to protect her husband or partner will take on that blame to the to her family and friends. So she'll actually say it's her fault <laughs> to protect. partner which I think is really interesting so that's one thing that I found quite a bit but I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that that research you know and Eleanor as well what did you what what came out of that research and and were there any differences that you found between UK couples and US couples or was it quite similar across the board
2: yeah, it's a great question. And I think one of the things that was kind of uh, very unique about our particular study was we interviewed the female partners specifically trying to understand their perspective of what he was going through and how they reacted, how they handled the diagnosis and the subsequent treatment. Yes, everything that Kevin shared about the male experience was actually seen in both uh, both sites. So we found consistency across the pond that uh, U.S. men are, are, are struggling similarly to U.K. men. But what I found it to be particularly interesting. It goes to your point that the female partners seem to be what I call, as a researcher, I called it active management of the man's emotions. And they were purposely, whether they were consciously doing it or not, but they were very purposeful about trying to help manage his emotional journey. And sometimes that did mean Absorbing the diagnosis or sharing that, you know, since, and it was somewhat easy to do in some ways because the female is the one that bears the physical grunt of the infertility treatment, having to go through the injections or the IVF process or whatnot. And so it very often, I, I would say more than half of our couples, you could definitely see the females taking that kind of active role um, in negotiating that between the, the two partners and their uh, uh, intimate relationship.
0: It's exactly what happened in our situation. Ah, okay. It's really interesting, actually. And with that in mind, are we then hindering the conversation in men? We're trying to encourage it to happen more. Yet, I know, Kevin, I'm sure you're familiar with the Men Only Facebook group that Gareth Down set up. And the idea was to enable men to not feel that their conversations were going to be overlooked maybe by their partners or it was to try and encourage that conversation and i'm assuming that's that's the intention is to hope that that there will be that freedom of of speech with this
3: absolutely we want it only to be that men only will be able to log into this. And obviously, we're not going to go around people's houses and see who's typing in what, but obviously, you know, we've seen it when women can creep onto the the web space, the men retreat a little bit, and we want a space where they feel safe to talk and talk openly about how they feel. And I completely agree that they may feel a little bit more restricted in what they can do and say, and indeed how how they behave. It may not even be what the women say or do that makes them feel that way. It might just be the way they feel they have to behave in front of women, I don't know, but we would very much like it just to be for that particular group. Now, in due course, there'll be other versions of this platform. There'll be versions to say same-sex couples, single women, etc. So there'll be, it'll be rolled out to try and encompass all different patient groups. But we started with the men because we feel they're the ones who perhaps have perhaps some of the least, least understood, least explored, perhaps they're least supported in some ways. So we're trying to help a group of people who perhaps are particularly struggling at the moment right now.
0: And and you talked before about wanting to have this kind of evidence based information. And one of the things that I definitely learned from the conversations I've had with the urologists and y- yourself that is that there's such a lack of funding into the research for male infertility. So does that hinder some of the amount of content that can come on? I mean, I know there's still research being done, isn't there?
3: Yeah, it, it definitely has a fact. There's no doubt about it at all. It's harder to get research. But you see, at the good end of the day, where does the money come from? The money comes from the public purse, by and large. And so the work that you do, people like you, is of massive influence, because that can really get to the funders. The argument has to be fought in the public domain. You can't just put the grant applications in and assume it's just going to happen that way. There's a public debate to be had about it. As you know, it's a difficult one. And in the UK, there's been a rolling bank of funding for facility treatments. But, you know, if we all sit passively and do nothing it'll only go one way but if we can speak up for our patients if we can make the public aware of the, the fertility discussion of, of what needs to happen I really think we can make a difference so I really think that it's very important to have this conversation in public and in that way it will influence the funding longer term.
1: And do you think with what is I, well, I think, and I know Natalie agrees with me, seems to be this rapidly changing landscape for fertility at the moment. Things are moving really, really quickly. Do you think that men are beginning to open up and talk a bit more? Are you seeing that? Are both of you and Eleanor, are you seeing that?
2: I can't say I'm seeing it here in the U.S. I feel like healthcare providers are finally starting to talk about the fact that men have been neglected in the conversation and in yeah. the care that we deliver, and I think it starts there. Fortunately, it is. I do see that those conversations in my professional circles, people are saying, "Oh, yes, we need to be thinking more about male fertility and and the experience in male fertility." But I don't think it's really hit the um, patient experience yet. Um, and that's and interesting. That's yeah.
1: interesting because I think I think we have in the UK as as professionals, and you know, with all the great work that the podcast has been doing, that. We are talking more about male fertility and hopefully as a result, men are starting to talk. What do you think, Kevin? Do you think men are, are you seeing that men are being more open and talking?
3: I think we're a kind of at the crucial time now, and people certainly are. There's some very brave people out there who are leading the way, mm-hmm. and that's going to make a huge difference because that's what they want to hear. They want to hear other men talking about it, they want to feel that they're not alone. There's a taboo to it, and we're to overcome the taboo to talk about it publicly. And we've seen this with other health issues, female health issues, male health issues. When I was a medical student, prostate cancer was very poorly researched, poorly understood. And people started to talk a lot more about it in public. And from that, there was a, a massive boost in funding. And it's absolutely transformed the environment of, of those people. And we're hoping to have something similar in fertility. I think we're just at the right time now for it over here.
0: Yeah, I agree. Because I know that when we were given the the diagnosis, the first thing my husband and I did was we went to Dr. Google and we were trying to see what we could find out about male infertility. And we couldn't find very much. And my husband was at his peak fitness at the time that we were trying to conceive. He was working as a personal trainer. He was totally flabbergasted at what we were told because he was doing in his mind everything right and even when we were kind of going towards treatments was still looking and changing and you know he stopped cycling and took and took any type of soy out of his diet and you know changed his underwear and all sorts of things and you know there was a change in his um in his his results but um only later when we went and um met Jonathan Ramsey he gave my husband a physical examination and we'd gone to kind of interview Jonathan and he'd asked to see the pair of and he talked to us about our results. It was an interview, it wasn't a consultation, but he was saying that with us being a couple that had success first time with ICSI, we were kind of part of the problem that ICSI was being used in in some ways with the stats and that who was to say that if we hadn't carried on that, you know, it wouldn't have happened. And um, but, But what was interesting as well in that was the physical examination side. And it's something that I know from the conversations that we're having with men, what's happening in the early stages of conversations with their GPs isn't what it should be. And I'm interested in whether you're hoping to involve GPs and health practitioners at the general stage rather than fertility specialists in what you're creating and hoping that they'll <laughs> you talked about education and awareness element at the start you know that this is a resource for them too well
3: that's a very good point actually we do know that there's an issue with this we're hoping with the bfs do some work with the world college general practitioners to try and increase the educational awareness some of what came from the research we've done and from other other people in this area is that how the information is given over what they're told at the start can have enormous consequences for their psychological well-being some of the things have been put over they've been explained to the patient in a fairly harsh way which I I think isn't intentional it probably just reflects the fact that they aren't really too sure of the ground that they're on and what they're supposed to be saying so I definitely think there's a role for education in this area and it's difficult for GPs because they've got to know so much about so many different things and also their consultations are necessarily short it's just the way it is they're overburdened but giving that information over, breaking that bad news to them is really important to them in the right way. Uh, I've had people saying, for example, that um, they're told in, in the same sentence that there's no sperm in the semen, they have to have a donor treatment straight up, and that, that's, that's breaking the news to them. And so that's really not what we would advise. There was an issue, perhaps, of patients getting access to counselling who wished to have it or some other form of support at that gap between when they see the GP and they get the news of the problem and when they're first seeing the facility link and then things start to happen. There might be a role for sort of almost preemptive counseling or preemptive support to get them to that first bit, because obviously, as I'm sure you appreciate yourself, when they first get to the clinic, often they're in bits, often they're um you know, they're very anxious, they're very stressed, they're uncertain about what's going to happen. For example, we've got one of our pieces we've written is about, you know, what happens when you have the consultation, what is likely to happen? Because there's a lot of fear and anxiety. You mentioned examination. Well, it, my, examination should be mandatory for male patients with a problem, but it, it's rarely performed. And that's really something that we need to change. Mm. I don't know what it's like in, in America, but certainly there's some excellent... Uh, males that you're in America and I think they're leading the way really uh, over the rest of the world in this regard.
1: Well, that's interesting because when we spoke to Cheryl Homer on one of our recent podcasts and she was saying exactly that Kevin that you know the the man is often ignored he's certainly not examined and certainly the, the conversations that Natalie and I have had men have talked about the fact that it's almost like they're not in the room that, that even though it might be a, a male fertility factor issue the focus is still very much on the woman and you think that's that's so wrong you know in what other area of healthcare would that ever be the case you know it's just mm-hmm. ridiculous really and there needs to be so much more focus on treating the man and referring to urologists or endocrinologists or andrologists whatever um, but there definitely needs to be that referral pattern and it, it's just not
3: happening. I remember one time when I was I was training and I was in a fertility clinic and the couple were sat there the gynecologist was focused on the female any, any issues on you I've had a testicle removed he wrote down one testicle removed that was the end of it the man wanted his story to be told he wanted to have a greater involvement he wanted to be examined he wanted to have that more of a connection with what's happening but that was denied him wow and he looked very crestfallen and I just thought it was very bad practice and it made me quite angry really and then it made me feel we wanted to we wanted to do it better People need to be treated better than that, really. And that starts, I think, with training the healthcare professionals to do things in a different way, giving them the skills to do this work confidently, because a lot of it isn't very difficult. It just needs to be done by someone who knows what they're doing. And that's all all we're really asking for. And if everybody worked to a minimum standard, the overall care of the patients around the globe would be much, much higher than it is now.
2: Well, and I think, you know, here in the U.S., it's similar processes are happening in that men are absolutely being um, circumvented in the process. And I think that's in part because of how our health care, our fertility care structures are um, how fertility care is delivered in general, in that it is a female facing healthcare structure. Women are the ones who seek out the appointments because they're ultimately the ones that get pregnant. And when a male factor is, is detected, because pregnancy is the reason they are coming in, if there is a solution to circumvent, it's very easy to say, oh, we'll just do an, you know, intrauterine insemination or we'll do ICSI. And because that is our stated goal, and that we haven't stepped back and said, wait a second. You know, the man is an equal partner in all of this, and maybe there's a reason that we need to figure out why his um, semen analysis isn't what we would otherwise hope it to be, and then getting the care that he needs. I think the consequence to that kind of a, a system or that kind of structure is that men continue to feel like their problems aren't. Real that aren't important. They're not worthy to be talked about. If the healthcare provider doesn't ask about it, why would anyone else in in his sphere want to acknowledge it? I think it reinforces the stigma that's a, that's associated with it.
0: Yeah, and then get
2: further silenced.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, the site is called All About Fertility. It's as we were talking about information expert information as well as this peer support element totally unique focusing on men at the start and I know full well if it was there when we needed it Mm -hmm. it would have been right up our street and I think it's it's much much needed and a lot of blood sweat and tears have gone into this would you say? (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah, I think it's safe to say a lot of uh, yeah a, a lot of red on the edit aspects of word documents. I think it's been it's been gone out, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, it's it's been a lot of hard work, but we're really hoping at the end of this we will do something that will really help people. That's all we really want is to try and improve the situation, and hopefully, working with other groups like yourself, we will be able to get there.
1: Oh, it certainly sounds
0: amazing. Congratulations. The expert input is it's so needed. I mean, uh, you know, it's what anybody who's got that TTC hashtag over them, whether it's unexplained, whether it's male factor and you're on Dr. Google, you want that expert advice and so to curate it like this i think it's so valuable Mm. thank you for telling us about it and of course we'll share all the details and we'll keep in touch to to see how we can work more to keep spreading the word as it grows and as the peer support element you know grows as well but really excited for this i think it's such a bold move and
3: much needed thank you very much natalie thank you very much kate
0: it's been a pleasure it's been lovely chatting
1: to you so interesting
0: So. Please do share this episode if you think that you know somebody that it will be of benefit to. Subscribe, share, rate and review this podcast. Five stars would be amazing because it just helps other people find this podcast. And with us all being on lockdown, we do have more time, although we are juggling working from home and everything else that we're now having to do. However, the more kind of recent reviews that the podcast gets, it kind of bumps it up in the charts and it just shows um, all the different podcast charty people that you're liking listening to what we're making. So if you have been listening for a while you haven't yet reviewed it it would just really mean the world to us so go go do that and get in touch with us with any questions with this insta live we've got this coming wednesday the 8th of april if you're listening to this after the date then check out the fertility podcast youtube because the insta live will be up there too And we're doing them every Wednesday at 12.30 GMT. So you can share your questions. I'm at Fertility Poddy. Kate is your fertility journey, just to remind you again, so you know how to get in touch with us. Thank you as always for your support. And until the next time.